At the beginning of August, I started preaching through the New Testament book of Romans. And this is my normal practice for preaching. I go through a book of the Bible, or at least a large portion of a book of the Bible, and we go just right on through it, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, passage by passage. This practice is not some cool thing I figured out. No, this is not unique to me. It has been done by Christians for centuries, and it is incredibly valuable. If for no other reason, following the text means you preach What comes next? Because when we get to choose each week something new, there can be a temptation to never touch on subjects that are uncomfortable or to keep on touching on subjects that seem to be cultural hot-button issues over and over again, never getting off our soapbox. And what we come to today is both uncomfortable and a major cultural issue. Today's passage from Romans addresses the unavoidable subject of homosexuality. And we need to hear these words today. We need to know what to do with these words. We come to God's inspired word today, the word that we just sang about, that he spoke through the prophets, through Christ, through the apostles, for the church in all ages. And so I would invite you, open up your bulletin or your Bible as we continue our study of Romans. And we're looking at Romans 1. Verses 24 through 27. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because... They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your word does speak to us that your word is sure, it is certain, it is not something that we can change as we like it, but it is there. It is a bright and shining light in a world that so often is darkened. And Lord, our minds and hearts get darkened as well, and so we pray, Lord, that you would speak your truth today. Lord, use me in spite of my own sin, in spite of my own weakness to faithfully proclaim your word. May your spirit go forth in the power of your word and answer to our prayers that you would work as you have promised to do through your word. Open our hearts and minds. Give us ears to hear today. We pray, God, that this word would work in us, that you would help us to know the truth, to hold fast to it, to stand for it, and to live by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If we were downstairs in adult Sunday school, we could spend weeks on this subject, 
I could talk about it in different ways that I felt we needed to talk about it, but as we're going through here, we got one week, and what is the big thing that this text is trying to get to? What is the truth that we in this particular place, at this particular time, need to hear? And I believe that the question I've got for you on your outline there is the big question we need to have an answer to, and that is how do we hold on to the biblical truth that homosexuality is a sin against increasingly zealous opposition? So how do we hold on to God's truth when God's truth is not only discarded, but despised? See, many of us, we wish we could just avoid this subject. We just want this issue to go away. It's not going away. And so to be a faithful Christian in our culture today, you need to be prepared to stand for truth against increasing opposition. And to help us in that endeavor, I want to present four necessary components to a faithful stance. How do we stand for God's truth? Four components. Now, the first one sounds pretty simple, and yet we cannot take it for granted. We must believe what the Bible says about homosexuality is true. To believe what the Bible says is true, we need to know what the Bible says about that subject. And our passage from Romans 1 is one of the clearest treatments we have in Scripture. Where do we find Romans 1? Well, as we saw two weeks ago, talking about that buffet, the broader context of Paul's discussion here in Romans 1, 2, and 3 is that God is revealing his wrath against all kinds of sin. And so like how in the library you will find different books by category, you'll find a fiction section, a biography section, a reference section. This subject is coming up in what you could call the sin section of chapters 1, 2, and 3 in Romans. And in verse 26, he makes it as abundantly clear as he can. He refers to homosexual behavior as dishonorable passions. In verse 27, he says, men were committing shameless acts with other men. He calls this an error. But this isn't like an error in baseball where, I'm sorry, I messed up. The word error here in the original language refers to something intentionally out of place. It was most often used to describe false teaching and other intentional deceptions. We see here Paul also says that people exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. That word exchanged is used three times in this short section of Romans 1, and in every instance, it's a bad exchange. You are exchanging something that is good and God-honoring for something that is sinful and dishonoring. So Romans 1 verses 26 through 27, is abundantly clear. Homosexual behavior is sinful. But Romans 1 is not the only place in Scripture that teaches this truth clearly. Our New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians 6 includes that sinful behavior in a list of other sins that will keep people outside of God's kingdom. It is right there alongside adultery, greed, idolatry. It's all there. In a list of sins, we also read in verse 11, the very hopeful verse that such were some of you, that God has made a change in your life. 
We saw our Old Testament reading from Leviticus 18. It also described the sinful practices of pagan peoples that Israel was to avoid. And in that list, we saw just gobs of examples of incest and bestiality, child sacrifice. That is the molech, that they would sacrifice their children. And right in the midst of all of that is homosexuality. This is what the Bible says. It is here. I encourage you to look at it. And yet, some have tried in vain to make the Bible say something less than what it clearly says. Some, for example, have argued that Paul really means that people should not go against their own nature, their own inclination and attraction, that that's what he means instead of the natural order of things. That's not what it says. Others have argued that the kind of homosexuality prohibited here is an abusive form practiced by upper-class men against slaves. That's not what it says here either. If you are curious about how it doesn't say those things, I'm happy to recommend many books that teach why that is not the case. We don't have time to go into that today. What I want you to see is all of those alternative explanations are obvious attempts to soften God's word about sin to sound more appealing to our current cultural preferences. That's all it is. Trying to sound more appealing to the way the culture is going. The Bible is clear. We can either try to deny its clarity or we can believe it in its clarity. And I believe, in fact, that the issue of homosexuality is not so much an issue about that specific sin. It is really an issue about believing the Bible. That ten years ago, when this congregation was discerning whether or not to leave our previous denomination, the issue that got all the attention, the presenting issue, was the acceptance of homosexuality by our previous denomination. But... That was a presenting symptom or issue of a deeper disease and problem that the denomination had abandoned its belief that the Bible was true. That that was the deeper issue. It had abandoned its belief in the Bible's clear teaching. And so similarly, in order to stand firm in our world today, we need to believe that what the Bible says is true. That we must submit ourselves to God's word, especially where it is clear and know that it is true. And so the first component of a faithful stance is believing the truth of the Bible. The second component of a faithful stance on this unavoidable subject is we must understand why people so zealously approve of homosexuality. Many people, especially those of you in older generations, if I, may, if I may speak for you, are a bit confused how we got here so fast. That in less than 40 years, it went from stigmatized to celebrated. That is shockingly fast. How'd that happen? Why are people in such strong support today? Well, this passage helps explain the reason why. And the reason given is idolatry. 
Verse 24 starts with the word, therefore. And you should always ask, what's it there for? And so it connects back to chapter 23, which says this. They exchanged, there's that word again, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. So the therefore of verse 24 connects to idolatry. Then verse 26, we read this. For this reason. All right, well, for what reason? Back to verse 25. It's about idolatry. Verse 25 says this, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, Pastor, that sounds great, but I'm guessing idol worship had a lot more to do with Paul's day than our day. There's no way idolatry explains today's acceptance of homosexuality. Well, have we exchanged anything? Certainly many more people today do not believe in God. Specifically, a creator God. And they have exchanged the truth that they were created by God with some kind of lie. A lie that involves worshiping and serving the creature instead. Ah, it's ridiculous. No one's going around worshiping and serving creatures. Well, which creature? The creature that we worship and serve is this creature. The creature that we are. That our biggest idol in our world today is the individual self. And so people have exchanged a creator God with an independent self whom they serve by seeking their own desires above all else. Now, if you're still like, that sounds way too ridiculous. Idolatry? Worshipping the self? That's way too strong. Okay. Think back to the month of June. Think back to pride. The flags. The parades. Do those not resemble religious celebration and worship? What is being celebrated? What is being praised? Our self. Our desires. Our ability to be who we want to be and to live how we want to live. That we are in charge. Do you see how that's an idolatry of the self? Do you see how, if that is your guide, it will lead you to this place? No longer do people think about a creator who made them to live as designed. Now people must serve their deepest desires that they find within. And they must express and fulfill those desires. And any attempt that is made to challenge that pursuit or question the validity of those desires will result in strong opposition. And that's because you are essentially questioning their God. We threaten the authentic self, which gives them meaning and purpose. And that helps us understand why there is such zeal to protect this pursuit of desires. Why there is such vitriol against anyone who stands in their way. And so we tend to see acceptance of homosexuality as the major issue. Underneath is this idol of self-expression 
that fuels the acceptance and celebration of homosexuality. And when you change your God, when you make an exchange, you often change your definition of sin, of what is wrong. That if you are ultimately serving your own desire for happiness and fulfillment, then sin becomes anything that keeps you from happiness and fulfillment. Anything that could harm others in their pursuit of happiness and fulfillment. Perhaps you have heard this response to the Christian point of view. Why do you care so much about what people do? It makes them happy. And they're not harming anyone else. It's a fair response. Now, I do believe an argument can be made that homosexuality causes harm to society as a whole. We should hear what they're saying, that sin has been limited to harm. There's all kinds of sins that cause harm, specifically throwing your brother out of a window, as we heard repeatedly up here in the children's message. But the Bible describes many sins that do not involve harm. Worshipping other gods. Making idols and carved images. Dishonoring the name of God. Not remembering the Sabbath and gathering for worship on the Lord's Day. Dishonoring your parents. Funny, those are like the first five commandments and none of them really have anything to do with harm. They are sins of dishonor. But if you lose any sense of a creator God that we should honor, you got no one left to honor. There are only fellow selves to avoid harming by honoring their own pursuits of self-fulfillment. Did you see that dishonor comes up twice in our passage? Showing that homosexuality, it's not an issue of harm, it's an issue of honor and dishonor. This helps us better understand why so many people today support this, even if they are not personally involved in it. That they have bought in to the individual self as the idol of the day, and harm is the only expression of sin that exists. So the second component of this stance is we need to understand that there is a deeper issue underneath what we can see. An issue that is far more widespread. In fact, it has spread very close to home. So the third component we need now, if we understand this, is we need to be able to speak the truth in love to the lost. That God does not merely call us to stand firm silently in the truth. We are also called to be witnesses for the truth. And the problem is the church, historically and broadly, has done a really bad job of this. You can see the obvious examples of a place like Westboro Baptist Church. But most churches have not done great about this. We've not shared the whole truth in genuine love. So how can we do that? Well, let's look at love and then truth. So love, our love needs to come from compassionate humility. In order for us to genuinely care for people, we need to see them as lost people. Not enemies, not opponents. We must see them as lost. And to have humility, we need to remember that we too were lost. That we are sinners like them. 
In fact, we are much more like them than we realize. That many of our own sins that we most struggle with come from the same roots of idolizing ourself and its desires. Consider how many of our sins we excuse because they don't harm anyone and we are pursuing what we want. We don't attend worship regularly because it's not harming anyone. And I want to do things. We don't pray to God because an absence of prayer doesn't really harm anyone. I mean, I'm busy. We insert patriotism into our worship services. Who's that really harm? And it helps those people. We make decisions as churches or families because we don't want to hurt people's feelings, even if we're not sure it's right or wrong. Now, just so you don't feel like I'm nitpicking that, Pastor, I mean, those are hardly sins there. Okay. Well, let's think about heterosexual sins. Ones that don't harm others. Perhaps it's watching pornography. Who does that harm? Engaging in sex before marriage or no-fault divorce. These all seem not to harm anyone, and they are all done in pursuit of what myself wants. They come from the same root as the sin of homosexuality. And so there's a strong temptation to feel superior to those who pursue homosexuality because many of us don't have that specific temptation. But when we recognize the same sinful root in ourselves, the Spirit can cultivate humility in us so that we can lovingly share the truth with them. So what is that truth? What truth must be shared in love? Well, part of the truth is that homosexuality is a sin. It's not the only sin. It's not necessarily the worst sin. But it's a sin, and the only hope for sinners is Jesus. Do you hear that? The only hope for sinners is Jesus. Sometimes we can wrongly imply or tell people that if you just need to stop sinning and live differently. But people pursuing homosexuality can't do that any more than you can stop sinning and live better. We must bring people to Jesus. And once they know Jesus and are filled with His Spirit, then we can see true change and obedience. That's how it happened in us. Isn't that how it's going to happen in anyone else? Now, sure, a complete change of desires is not guaranteed. There are plenty of faithful believers who struggle with same-sex attraction and they strive to deny those desires and celibacy to the Lord. But our God's a powerful God and change is not impossible. This truth that we share should not just be in words, but it needs to be truth that is seen. See, the lost need to be welcomed into a community where truth is lived out in love. So when we share the truth in love to folks in the LGBTQ community, can we invite them into a better community that loves and supports them better than those who currently do? Does our church operate like the Corinthian church that Paul spoke to, where we can say, such were some of you? That there is an acknowledgement that we were all sinners, that we were all lost who had to be found by Jesus, that this is a place where repentant sinners can strive by God's grace to live out the goodness of his design. Can we see that here? These three components 
of knowing the Bible, understanding why people believe differently, and then sharing the truth in love. I guess we're down to one left, and it's possible that many of you have a lot of questions remaining. What do I do if this person's in my family? That's rough. Should I attend a same-sex wedding ceremony? Should we advocate for these kinds of relationships to be outlawed? Should we push for them not to be allowed to adopt children? Should we, how do we counsel people who are repentant, who are in these relationships and have children? How do I respond if someone comes out to me? What if my child's teacher or coach is openly homosexual? What does any of this have to do with the transgender thing going on? I don't have time to address all of those. But I know that over the last eight years that I've been here, I have had many of you in my office asking those very same questions. So if you've got those questions, I'm happy to listen. I'm happy to pray with you, to talk through how we remain faithful. Schedule a time or ask your Bible study group if you're in a group. Seek out the counsel of a godly man or woman you know to ask these hard questions because there's a lot of them. But right now, instead of dealing with all of the tricky specifics, I want to help us with what I believe is the most difficult and forgotten of the components. We can think to ourselves, if I know that God's truth is right, and I understand why people don't believe it, and if I can convey that truth in love, surely... They will listen and believe and change. And if they don't, they'll at least respect me and not hate me for thinking differently. Everything will be great if I have these three other components. Maybe. Maybe not. It is possible to believe everything correctly, to discern the cultural idols correctly, to share the truth and love correctly, and yet still be rejected and still be hated by the world. And that is why the fourth component to a faithful stance is we must be committed to honoring God above all. The only way we can hold a belief that causes other people to hate us is if we have some higher value than what others think of us and how they treat us. And that is the honor of God. It was also a super convenient children's message topic. You don't have to look far to find examples for how Christians are opposed and vilified for holding on to biblical truth. In fact, we are often told that the hatred of the LGBTQ community against us, their hatred against us, is our fault because our beliefs hurt them. And so they are justified in their anger towards us. And we are made to feel like the bad guy because we are allegedly harming them. Now, it's possible you are being mean about it. It's possible you're being a jerk about it. But it's also possible you are honoring God and not harming them at all. But let me tell you, it sure does not feel like you are honoring God when you are being hated. It seems to us that when we honor God, it should involve people coming to believe in God, not despising and rejecting Him. So these verses give us some help. They help us to see that God is at work even when people reject His truth. 
Notice that twice, verse 24 and 26, it says God gave them up to their sins. That just as God handed Israel over to their idolatry in the Old Testament, so also God hands people today to their sinful pursuits. It's not just that he merely lets them go. It's almost as if God says he pushes them down the path that they have chosen. That God's justice and holiness against sin bring him honor. That's hard for us. It is so hard for us to think. And yet, this text says it in different ways. Look at verse 27. It says, They received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, some throughout history have tried to eliminate Uh, to limit this penalty to diseases like the AIDS virus, but it should instead be understood as God's wrath broadly, sending people deeper into their sin where they will only find judgment. See, seeing the wrath of God against sin does not bring us joy. I'm just, I'm going to guess that about you. It doesn't feel like God's wrath against sin is something we celebrate. We would much rather sinners be saved in Jesus Christ, be able to say, such were some of you. That's what we want. And yet we affirm God's honor by saying, you are just. You are good. We honor God by agreeing that sin should be punished. By praising Him that He is a good and faithful God. Honoring God and affirming His righteous wrath helps us stand firm in a world that increasingly approves of wickedness. Because it can feel like things are too far gone. And we can feel like things will never get better in our lifetime. And frankly, that may be true. But I can promise you God will make things right. He will bring light back to a dark world. On the day that Jesus comes, Paul even, he's thinking about it in verse 25. He can't help himself in the midst here. He just has to say, the Creator who's blessed forever. He just needs to burst out in praise in the midst of this darkness. See, the entire world may oppose you for holding on to God's truth, but a day is coming when God will make everything right. And the only hope that any of us have to stand on that day is not that we have avoided these sins over here. It's not that we have kept ourselves from these specific kinds of very bad sins or impurity or dishonorable passions. No, our only hope is to know that we were just like that. Our only hope is Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, in whom we are washed, sanctified, and justified that we might inherit that kingdom of God. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us strength, strength of faith and strength of conviction, that we would honor you and love you and hold fast to your truth. God, we pray that we would do that, but we we would not do it proudly, that we would not do it in self-righteousness, but that you would give us also a humble compassion to acknowledge that we were just like that. We were lost. We were sinners. We were going our own way, following our heart. Help us to lovingly share the truth and to stand for it for your glory and honor, O God. In Jesus' name, amen.